Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. Today I speak with rapper, producer, entrepreneur, tech wizard, rabbi, friend, wise man, and founder of Rock for Israel, Eitan G., the Jewish rapper. Our talk begins with him as an adopted kid in a Jewish family in Phoenix, moving through his upbringing in Randallstown outside of Baltimore, his decidedly unorthodox schooling, falling in love with black music and culture, his ongoing love affair with Israel, finding his way in Los Angeles, and becoming a part of the Cantor's Kibitz Room music scene. Love, connection, and music. It's what it's all about. And for anybody with sensitive ears, there is some colorful language here. Just FYI, here's me, and Aton G. And hello there, Aton G. How what is doing? up, baby? Oh, so glad to see you. It's been it's been far too long. Yes, about a year, I'd say. It's been about a year because it was last what last March, the middle of March last year, where everything everything shut down, and um, and we of course know each other from the Kibitz Room, the Cantor's Kibitz Room, a place where so many amazing musicians come through. Oh my God. I mean, you just never, I remember one of the later um, or the more, the one of the last nights of that Tuesday night was Bernard Fowler coming in yes. and Wild Horses of the Rolling Stones. And yes. I didn't, I didn't know who he was when he went up. And I remember after he was standing by the bathrooms and I was going by, you know, to the restroom. And I just, I, I, I just, I just took his arm and I said, thank you so much for that. That was so great. And he said, oh, thank you so much. And he was just so sweet and humble. And then later on, Brad introduced me. And that's when I realized, oh, it's Bernard Fowler, the Rolling Stones. <laughs> right. So I found out during COVID many, many months later that I, I knew who Bernard Fowler was with the singing, with the stones and everything. But what I didn't know and what makes him special to me is that he was in my favorite hip hop movie of all time called Beat Street. He was at the end of the movie singing like a gospel singer preacher. And it was just awesome, awesome. And uh, I found out that he was the guy like, no way. I should have yeah. gone out to him and said something about that. Yeah, because that's a deep track. That's something most people don't know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I got to I got to search that out. But um, so let's let's begin with you. Let's uh, let's go back in the way back machine, as they say, and uh, and go back to your origins, where you began. Well, it started with semen and an egg. <laughs> it's interesting. As I've gotten older, it's you know, when you watch a movie and you watch it for the first time and you see how the story plays out, you don't know what's going to happen, but the ending happens. And you're like, that was cool. And then you watch that movie again because it was a good movie and you look back on it. And now, you know, what's going to happen and you can analyze it 
a little bit differently. Oh, now I understand the motivation. Now I understand why. And more things are revealed. And the more you watch it, the more you examine it, the more maybe not interesting because the, the initial interest is virgin territory. But after that, as you get to know it, you can analyze it deeper and deeper what what was going on. And I think for my life, um, it's much the same way. There's more little details in the structure of my life that I find enhance or alter how I look back at my life. So when I was born, I was born, I was adopted. I was adopted by white Ashkenazic Jews. My biological mother was a Persian Jew from Tehran, maybe 17 or 18 years old, give or take. And my biological father was a Persian Muslim in Tehran. And I've met my birth mom recently, maybe, you know, shortly after I moved out to L.A., total by fluke, it worked out and we've kept in touch. And she filled me in on a lot of these details about him. And, you know, because I asked, how did you guys meet Muslims, Jews? It didn't it wasn't a thing, you know, and Tehran back then was revolution and there was a lot going on. And she explained, you know, uh, we were sitting or he was sitting on a wall and I was walking, coming home from school with my sister, blah, blah, blah. And they became friends. And I guess there was some kind of relationship and they hooked up. And, you know, I asked her, you know me, I'm going to ask questions straight up. Did you guys bang each other? She goes, no, we were making out. And, you know, he came and a little too close. Sometimes you're in, but you're not in and you're not all the way. But yeah. Anyway, this is how she describes it to me. And I just and she didn't know she was pregnant. So for many, many, you remember, we're talking in the late 60s, early 70s. Women didn't know from periods. Women didn't know about cycles. And she came to America um, for college, like an ex a foreign exchange student. Mm -hmm. And after six months of being here in America, she, she had to go to the doctor because she wasn't feeling well. Now, the fact that she missed her period, she didn't even realize her. She just started to jet lag, you know, from the plane. Right, right. She wasn't showing mm -hmm. because, you know, she's just putting on weight because, you know, America. Right. <laughs> and and uh, six months in, doctor says, look, you're pregnant. And she flipped out and she was going to have an abortion. And she was living at a border, a non-Jewish family as a border for school. And she was going to give me up for she had a change of heart. She's going to give me up for adoption to them. And I think maybe a month before I was actually born, she chose to give me up to the Jewish family services in Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. And from there, my parents happened to have been on that list. And they were in Phoenix, Arizona at the time. My father was a medic in the U.S. Army working with uh, Navajo Indians in Phoenix. And they were living there at the time. And they get a call and, they, you know, hey, you want this cute little Jewish rapper? And they said, sure. <laughs> and uh, they flew to Portland and that was it. So if you fast forward to when I moved out to L.A. and I met her, she still had the bio mom. She still had the uh, pacifier cover. And I think the bracelet, you know, bracelet. the baby gets yeah. the hospital bracelet. And, you know, it was I think it was more uh, emotional for her meeting me than it was for me meeting her. I think uh, she was a big source of information for me and kind of put the package together. I was able to figure some things out, but I had a really incredible youth. My youth was a lot of fun, at least in my opinion. Uh, I made a lot of people's lives miserable, but it was a hell of a lot of fun for me. Where, um, where in Phoenix uh, were you living? Cause that's my hometown. So I once visited the apartment complex where I have home movies of me swimming in the pool. It's huh. still there and it still looks like it was, you know, in the home movies. I can't tell you where in Phoenix because I don't know. But I know that the Jewish synagogue, the Orthodox synagogue that's in Phoenix, mm -hmm. it was walking distance from that synagogue. OK, so there's a Jewish community, I guess, and it's still there. Maybe it's grown. Um, but in that Phoenix, it wasn't where we live was not far away from that synagogue. 
Mm-hmm. So you, and I'm pretty sure there's only one Orthodox synagogue in Phoenix. Yeah, yeah, I think it's downtown. But you, but you then, in not too too many years, you ended up moving to the East Coast, right? You were in New York. Correct. So two years, I was in Phoenix with my parents. Then they moved to the Bronx, which is where my grandparents lived at the time, and that was only temporary. And I, I asked my mother about this just this last week. I said, "How did you guys get to?" Randallstown, Maryland, because I'm a part of a Facebook group that's, you know, Randallstown in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And it's, it's, it's a small little enclave and its origins. And it's a cute little place. But how did my parents find it? And my mom said, look, we were visiting Baltimore and your father's cousin was in Baltimore and we were just asking around what are the places. So there's two at the time, two Jewish areas. There was the Park Heights area. And there was the uh, Randallstown area and Owings Mills and Park Heights. And those that was, you know, where the Jews lived, secular reform, Orthodox didn't matter. But there were it wasn't a thing. The Park Heights area was not a thing. And Randallstown wasn't really a thing. But there were more Jews that lived there at the time than did in Park Heights. So my parents said, I will get something in Randallstown. And so the for the till I was 10 years old, we lived in Randallstown and Randallstown was great. They had a swim club, like a, you pay a membership. So from Memorial Day to Labor Day, swimming. And we were, I rode my bike there. My backyard was a, an immense forest with streams and trees. And, you know, there weren't a lot of kids that, that I played with. I had friends, but not a lot. Playing in the woods, I loved that. And I'd hear my mom scream, dinner, you know, and then I'd come back. But the ability to just, hang out in nature was always I always dug that and at 10 years old they moved to the Park Heights area which had grown immensely in you know Orthodox Judaism and uh, I moved out of there when I was 23 which is when they moved out of there so when they moved to Houston Texas when I was 23 there's no way I was going to Houston Texas right so it was either back to New York to party a little bit more or LA and party for real Wow. And then so, and you also you went to Yeshiva University right before I went to YU for college. And but during that time, I was also going back and forth to schools in Israel. So there was a school in Israel, which uh, hang on one sec. There's schools in Israel that customer, you know how after you finish high school, you take a year off and you go abroad. So Orthodox Jews, Jews in general, people, they'll go to Israel and many of the kids after they finish high school, they'll find a school that fits them in Israel and they'll continue learning and it's beautiful. And I went to a school which at the time was for the bad boys of Orthodox Judaism. I mean, we're talking. It's like, yeah, you remember the show Oz? Yeah. This was like that. We had guys from New York, L.A., metalheads and just, you know, fires and, and explosions and stealing. And it was just a bad boys that eventually by the end of the year, you grew up real fast because you were surviving on your own. You weren't with mommy and daddy and you had a great time in Israel. So it's, I kept going back. Bad boys. It was for the bad boys of Orthodox Judaism. And I fit right in because I tried out to many of the other schools that were much less you know, and nicer and cleaner and followed by the rules. And, you know, and I kept I, it, I visited a friend. I was going to stay there for a week and I got kicked out the first day. <laughs> wow. What did you do to get kicked out? Sometimes the things that I do, there's nothing that I do. It's just who I am. Mm-hmm. Hey, you don't fit this mold. You don't fit this vibe whatever. It's the same reason I got kicked out of high school, the same school I got kicked out of in elementary school. It was a good time. On paper, my history is very normal. Oh, he graduated high school. He graduated college. Oh, he has a master's degree in education. Oh, lovely, lovely. You know, but every it's the in-between that really tells the story. Your only crime was nonconformity. <laughs> That kind of is there was I was not a bad kid. I wasn't a damaged kid. I wasn't a fight kid. I was just a ball of energy. Really was unbridled energy. And my career started because I started getting I started getting paid to do all the things that I was getting kicked out of schools for. Remember, I got kicked out of an all black public school in Baltimore. And that's pretty good. Uh, I got sent to a mental institution in Baltimore called Shepherd Pratt Hospital, where 
in this hospital, I was the best kid. I mean, you, you had kids that were drug addicts and uh, suicidals and all that kind of, and I was just a wild Jewish kid, you know, it's just pretty smart. And I just didn't fit in. So they sent me to this place at 11 years old. I was there for two years. They, they just didn't know what to do with you. So there were very few schools in Baltimore that uh, that I could go to. There was TA, Talmudical Academy, which was the yeshiva that the Orthodox day, day school that I kept just getting in trouble with. Uh, and then I went to a school called Falstaff Middle School, which was predominantly a black school. I had a great time there and it was a great change of pace from the school that I was in. But again, didn't fit in. My parents pulled me out or the school kicked me out or recommended I don't come there anymore. <laughs> and so my parents looked at this place called Forbush, which was the day school of Shepherd Pratt Hospital. And they didn't have any space for any new kids at the time. So my parents said, fine, we'll, we'll put him in, you know, and he'll live there in the dorm or whatever. And they had different floors for different kids. So mine was a 13 and under floor. The rest of the floors were 14 and over, different breakdowns, different issues uh, for the kids, di different supervisions. So I, I was pretty, I, I figured out the world real quick. I was exposed to music in immense proportions during that time from 10 years old until, you know, 14, 15 years old, I was exposed to so much music I never would have been exposed to. When I went to Falstaff, it was primarily black artists, Al Green, Bill Withers. I was exposed to black culture, black history, which fascinated me. Benjamin Banneker and, and, and Harriet Tubman and uh, Edgar Me Medgar Evers. And, yeah, I, I, these are and I didn't know who they were. So I asked. I had a friend. Marlo Bumry was his name. Marlo, who's this guy? Oh, this guy was a freedom fighter. And who's this guy? And you get the history from. And to me, it was fat. Wow. Jews were slaves also. That's cool. It was all things I didn't know about because I just spent the first 10 years of my life in a uh, almost like a bubble. You know, so from a music standpoint, from a culture standpoint, I had a newfound respect for people that I had seen, but not really interacted with. When I went to this hospital, uh, it was really just an eclectic. It was everybody. But during that time, you know, there was always long haired rock and rollers. That yeah. was the thing. And then there were, you know, black R&B. It wasn't really a hip hop thing, but just groovy. Yeah. And it all appealed to me. It all appealed to me. It was great. And you would not have been exposed to that cultural milieu <laughs> had you not been in that hospital. I would not have been exposed to any of that if I wasn't kicked out of my Orthodox day school. Yeah. The rest was gravy. Baltimore was not like L.A. The way when I speak to musicians that grew up in L.A., mm -hmm. they had they were exposed to different music, not different, different, but different. There's stuff that there are bands that I know of that I heard my whole youth that some of these guys have never even heard of. Really? You never heard of that band? You know, they're the big ones the you know, that everybody knows. But I found that here in L.A., there was much more, um, I guess what I've learned from the business is there's, there's marketing, there's different regions that they market music to. And so Baltimore was either hard rock, 98 rock. There was a pop station, Baltimore's best B 104 means music, hot hits 106 and DC 101. Those are really the stations that it was either rock and roll mm -hmm. or R and B. Mm -hmm. So I was exposed to it all and I loved it all. Mm -hmm. And then you just kind of soaked it in. And then when you were 23, you come to L.A. What was the occasion of your coming to L.A.? Did you just decide to go or was there somewhere to go to? Well, the, the backstory is, you know, I told you when I went to Israel my first year when I was 18, uh, in the middle of that year, I got kicked out of that school of the bad boys of Orthodox Judaism. And um, we worked out a way that I could kind of finish off the year there. And they let me back in. But. I couldn't live in a dorm. I had to live in an apartment and it was a whole thing. And it was a great year. And then I wound up coming back for a second semester after that. And then you fast forward to after I graduate college, after going back and forth to that school just for fun, 
during the years of college, uh, I graduate college and I moved to Israel. I'm done. I'm going to Israel. I'm having such a great time in Israel. I'm going to Israel. And I went back to that school for the bad boys and became the dorm counselor, the assistant dorm counselor, the program. I, I did events, you know, for the guys. All right. Yeah. This Saturday night event, we're doing that this Saturday, night, you know, and I eventually got kicked out of there again. <laughs> they said, dude, it's not working out. So I traveled around Israel a little bit once I got kicked out. Um, and when I came back to America in March of that year, I think it was March of 93. It was I was living in New York. You do the odd jobs. You figure it, kind of figure it all out. And at the end of 93, my parents moved to Houston, Texas. And I, you know, got to figure it out. So it was either go back to New York, which is kind of where I was. But New York didn't appeal to me because by this point, I already met so many amazing people all over the world, just traveling and different different types of Jews. It wasn't just a white Ashkenazic Jew. You had Sephardim and hippies and, and rockers and every so many different kinds of Jews that to go back to New York, which is predominantly white Ashkenazic Jews, um, many of whom have these these issues of guilt, you know, that we do things, we serve God out of guilt, you know, we, 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 but if you do this, you're not, and I was hanging out with so many different people that it wasn't about guilt. It was about joy and happiness wow. and singing and dancing. And, and while, and you were able to mix everything all together and it, it tasted better to me. So I didn't really want to go back to New York for those reasons. And Florida, Miami, I had many friends there had already been there. Miami was kind of like a sunny New York. And I said, you know something coming out of the 80s, MTV, music, party, L.A. Let's do L.A. I had friends here and let's make it work. And I came out here and I'm still here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and joy is a much better pursuit <laughs> than uh, than guilt. For for Catholics, it's shame. And for oh. the Jews, it's guilt. <laughs> right. right. I was never one of those. I didn't so much shit in my life that guilt i was already there's no such thing as guilt anymore i, I did it joy yeah i did it all right fine sorry <laughs> and then and then somewhere along the line you got infected by rush when, uh, so when that was i will tell you when that happened so remember i told you when i was living in randallstown i had seen there were jews that lived there but there were also non-jews that lived there and the non-jews that lived there were all white kids with, you know, rock and roll shirts, kiss and, you know, bad. Yeah. So any anti-Semitic experience I had, it was from some kid with a, a rock logo on his shirt. I didn't know these bands when I went to. And so I had seen a Rush logo. So I was familiar. I don't know what Rush is. I didn't know that it was a band. When I went to this hospital. There was a they had a game room that, you know, all the kids that kids played in pool tables, arcade games, all that such. And on the walls of this game room, the high school kids with permission had painted logos of rock bands, ACDC with the lightning bolt, VH with the, you know, and there was Rush 2112, the man in the star. And I just stared at this because I knew, uh, well, five pointed stars, Satanism. That's awesome. <laughs> These guys are demons. So yeah, rock and roll. And uh, and I subsequently found out and uh, simultaneously during that same period, if I finished my work in my English class, the teacher's name was Mr. Witt, James Witt. And if I finished my work early, he would let me go to another room with a crappy cassette recorder and headphones. And he had five cassettes that I could listen to uh, and pick your choice. And, you know, it was like Aerosmith something it was uh acdc for those about to rock which was also cool cover with the cannons uh there was a sticks paradise theater and uh, maybe a black sabbath or something like that and a rush moving pictures okay so i listened to all these the rush one i knew from upstairs in the game room with the pentagram the satanism and i listened to the first song which was tom sawyer and the lyric goes uh and the space he invades gets by on you and in the crappy headphones i hear and the spacey invaders get by on you so these guys are satanists and they love arcade games that's awesome these guys are the best 
And that's that was my foray into Rush. And I can tell you the, that was the album that I listened to many times. And the only really I was only interested in side one. I was 11, 12 at the time, side one. And I was only interested in Tom Sawyer, Red Barchetta and Limelight. Yeah. YYZ, which was on side one, wasn't interested in. It didn't connect with me. And then the other ones were the, the camera eye and witch hunt and, and vital signs on side two. None of those connected with me either. It, it, my brain couldn't process it. It wasn't until many, many years later mm -hmm. that I, I had, you know, love, true love for them. And that was my intro to Rush. And I just became a diehard. And once I was not in the hospital anymore as an inpatient, but rather as a day student when I was going to the school, I was starting to build up a crew of friends in Baltimore and everybody was into what most kids were into at the time, the Michael Jackson, the culture club, you know, the pop, and it was all fun and good. I had no animus to any of those, but rush that I listened to was no one else could connect with it. That was my baby. So as I grew, I grew with rush. I started exploring more. Remember there's no internet then. So I'm doing the discovery. Mm -hmm. And that was and then I as life went on, I became you can ask anybody from the time that I'm 16 on. They hey, dude, you still listen to Rush? Oh, you're still wearing Rush T-shirts. It's unbelievable. You haven't grown up. What the hell? And you have that's how I know. and I've noticed that you have Rush on your Kipas. That you I have Rush on my Yama. I have Rush on everything. I have Rush on everything. I have socks. I have I have every, anything that says Rush on it or some. I have it's everything, really anything. Screensavers, phone, everything. You know, it's interesting because Rush is one of those bands where people, the people who love Rush, love Rush. There is oh. nothing. Nobody is neutral about them. People either love them or they can't stand them. You know, the people that there are people who are, you know, in the camp of, oh, Getty Lee sounds like a screaming cat or whatever, you know, and then that, but then I, but I, I find it fascinating because it's essentially Prague, you know, and so the musicality is on such a high level. And then Neil yeah. Peart, oh, you know, what a yeah. man, what a, what a yeah. great Buddha of percussion and lyrics, of course. And um, so they, they absolutely blow my mind. Well, most of the music that was on the radio at the time was pretty straightforward. The Bad Companies, the Bostons, you know, all great music yeah. and all complicated in their own way. But it wasn't Rush. And you have to jump back to when I was a kid. You know, fortunately, I had parents that were really, really great. And they were really, really enlightened in that. Observant Jews, you know, it kept Shabbos kosher. You know, my father studied all the time. Uh, he was a doctor. That was his thing. But he was also very into the arts. We went to operas. He took me to classical music for years. The Boston Symphony Orchestra to this day, I still go see. I take my kids to see the Boston, Baltimore, not Boston, Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. Uh, every year they have this thing at Oregon Ridge, July 4th, and they play, you know, Americana and all kinds of great and it's classical and I loved it in Broadway shows. We would go to New York, Rockefeller Center and Radio City Music Hall. I was exposed to the arts at a young age, ballet, eight year old kid, ballet plays. And Rush was, you know, you listen to classical music, Beethoven, Mozart, Bach, Haydn, Hadnel, they're all sophisticated. And so my brain was already accustomed to sophistication that it's not the same beat every time that it's not the same metronomic thing that you know rush had something sophisticated oh there's an extra hi-hat here oh he did the, oh the, yeah, all these new things that were just not what was prominent and bands like yes didn't appeal to me as much because it, not for yeah, i love yes but didn't i didn't connect with them as much as rush rush were more about the individual the independent the free thinker uh, and, and that's where my head has always been. I'm, yeah. I'm in a world of Orthodox Jews, but I'm kind of my own enigma within it. You know, I, I'm, I've chosen this while I was born into it. I've chosen the path, how I want to interact with it. And that was much what Rush was like. They were about independence and the free mind. And, and they, I got into that. They, they, uh, they appeal to your, your libertarian mindset. 
know, maybe I don't I don't categorize because I'm, I'm definitely conservative in some ways, definitely liberal in others and definitely libertarian in others. Yeah. So there's no uh, I think uh, we have a mutual friend that said eight times you're an enigma because you can't pigeonhole me. You know, Orthodox Jew that does, you know, he goes to the disco every Saturday night. You know, wow, that's weird. Nowadays, it's a lot different. A lot of people do different stuff and but there was nobody that did it when i was growing up really it was nobody so you how did your parents uh how so as you're as you're forming yourself through all of these experiences and how how are your parents reacting to the things that you are resonating with were they supportive or were they support i they were <laughs> i don't know if becoming a jewish rapper any jewish parent is going to support um, but what it look, you have to go back to the ages between five years old and let's say 14 years old. It was a very tumultuous time for my parents. My parents are very straight, very normal pocket protector and much deviance from that norm is they, they learned how to adapt and adjust just as I learned how to adapt and just, and they did the best they could with what they knew. Mm -hmm. And fortunately they were, you know, growing up in the community at the time, there were other people, you know, after I'd gotten out of the hospital, one of the things that was said was you need to get him involved in something social and like this, some way to get his energy out, some way to grow. And they got me a big brother, kind of guy, friend of a friend, great guy. He was in college at the time and he exposed me to the who. And I didn't know the who I had heard of the who, but I didn't really know their music. Yeah. But at the time I was 13 years old. It didn't appeal to me for no other reason that it was just too hard. I wasn't into hard music. Rush mm -hmm. wasn't hard. It was more sophistication. And while looking back, yeah, it's hard rock, but it, there was a different I connected to it differently. And so he and I would have arguments about, you know, Michael Jackson's the best, but now the who's the best. <laughs> okay. You know, um, but during that tumultuous time, there was a rabbi in Baltimore who I knew the name of because he did these Jewish concerts every year on Hanukkah time. And he would bring in these cool guys. And even when I was seven, eight years old, there's a picture somewhere, you know, these artists would come and I'd be in the front right in front of the stage. And these guys would pull me up because I was just dancing all into the music. Uh, and fast forward to now this guy, uh, they said, listen, you gotta get him connected with someone uh, that can kind of guide him and mold him because you, the parents, you're gonna do what you do as parents, but he needs something outside of that. I met this rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak Lowenbrown in Baltimore. And this guy at the time was the regional director for a youth group called NCSY, National Conference of Synagogue Youth. And he, you know, I met the guy and he was a long black coat with a fur hat and the curls, that kind of guy. Really, dad, this is who you're. But the guy was cool and he was really down to earth and it wasn't fire and brimstone with this guy. Um, and he invited me to come to these weekend retreats with the kids. And from that, my life changed forever those next four years because the guy was into music, always brought live music, live musicians. And the band that he brought was one called Kesher with the lead singer, Lenny Solomon, which Lenny then started a group called Schlockrock. Now, these weekend retreats were, it, it was on the Sabbath, we don't have live music, but they're still singing at the tables and singing, dancing even. Uh, but the before and after the Sabbath, it was just all music. And during then in the 80s, we didn't have anything to distract us. And the band played and I danced and I was already introduced to rap kind of before because I every time I got suspended from something, my mom would take me to Brooklyn where my grandmother was. And that was my exposure to what was to become hip hop. So I was the orthodox kid break dancing with the boom box and getting up on stage with this band. And so my future then kind of got laid out because these cats saw here's a guy with a lot of energy and this kid can rap and entertain. And 
and that was the beginning, the seed that ultimately grew down the end. You know, that's how it went down. Not and just, from there, not just becoming a Jewish rapper, but the Jewish rapper. There's only one, baby. There's only one. And I'll tell you, it, there's only one. And nobody knew that this would be a career. But for Lenny, the king of Schlock himself, when he he by 86, he was already doing shows all over the country as Schlock Rock. And I was just a kid that couldn't wait to go to the next weekend retreat to rock. Girls dug me. Guys liked me. I was a friendly kid, a fun kid. Again, not violent just a lot of fun and a lot of energy and i would do anything for attention and as loony as it would be and all these shows and so you'll have to fast forward there's some of the raps that i wrote the first rap i wrote was uh uh i think it was called wash this way which was in 86 it was a parody of walk this, walk way. this way and yeah. it was education why we wash our hands before we eat the bread and they already did one called Bless On It, which is a parody of Jam On It, which is one of my favorite songs. That was the one I would break dance to at these youth retreats. Lenny became very big in the Jewish world. He was doing shows for reform, conservative, every denomination of Jew you could pick. Um, and when I moved out to and he had already had me come and do feature, you know, a feature guest appearance on a song on an album in a music video here, little by little as I was growing and he was growing. Once I moved out to L.A., I opened up. Uh, I was doing import export. I was working at a restaurant. I knew the food business because that's what I did. I got I tried to start a kosher restaurant, a kosher deli in Palm Springs. I got screwed out of that with with the partner. It happens. I didn't really know business back then, but I knew the idea was good. I knew how to make it happen. And I started getting calls from Lenny saying, hey, man, you know, uh, this guy got married. And he's moving to here and this, you know, his band, they're all growing up, getting regular jobs and all that. Uh, do you want to come on the road and, you know, you'll do a couple songs? Sure. And I did a couple shows with him and he saw that, you know, as I got older, I was not only athletic and, and could dance and could entertain. But, you know, I was an asset because I also knew how to uh, do stuff that he couldn't do that together. It was a good team. So as time went on, he started calling me for more and more shows and my skills became better. At the same time, during that period, I also got asked by there was a, a rock duo called Evan and Jaron. And these guys also were Orthodox Jews, but, you know, they had pop songs and everything like that. And they needed someone to come on the road. Not only do you deal, you know, make sure everybody had kosher food, meaning the two of them and me, the band wasn't Jewish um, to kind of be the roadie, uh, the tech guy. I was I was really good at tech, but also the drum tech and the bass tech. And I had no idea other than schlepping equipment for friends of mine when I was 15. I don't know how to tune a drum or tune a bass. It wasn't my and I learned real quickly on the road because I love traveling. I love people. And so those two experiences behind the scenes. And of course, with Lenny in front of the scenes were the balancing act that after I got my master's degree in education and I started teaching here in L.A., uh, I realized that dealing with teachers and dealing with principals and bureaucracy and schedules was not my jam. Teaching kids was awesome. I can convey information to kids. I was a great teacher, but all that peripheral stuff, which was the predominant stuff. Ultimately, I, I, I couldn't swing that way. So I was getting more gigs and making a lot more money doing both of these things and entertaining. And I loved it so much more. And ultimately, that's what happened. You know, someone said, hey, we, they saw me at a Jewish concert and they uh, the schlock rock concert. And they said, hey, uh, we want to invest in your first solo album, which would be kind of a crossover, you know, and that's where it all started. So you're really the Jewish rapper. Yeah. So you're thriving in the in the business of connection, of connecting with yes. people and, and, and not all this, like you said, all the peripheral bureaucracy and crap that you have to deal not with. For as a not for me. Not for me. So then um, um, what about what about your connection with with Cantor's and the Kibitz room? When did that start? So when I moved out to L.A., uh, end of 93, beginning of 94, I was figuring it all out. Really, L.A. was new. I had visited a few times and I had a few friends and many of them rockers. You know, they knew about the whiskey, the Roxy, all this. 
But one, I had a friend who said, you got to check this place out called the Kibbutzim. It's Kibbutzim. It's so Jewy name and Jewy. I don't like Yiddish. And yeah, that's me. I don't like any of that kind of stereotypical Jewy stuff. Uh, Kibbutzim. All right, fine. Dude, you got to go there, man. Great musicians and so much fun. All right, fine. You know, you're 24, 25 years old. Sure. And I went and oh, my God, it was something like I never saw before. Back then, you could smoke in the bars. You know, there were people doing drugs and, you know, people having sex in the bathrooms and great music playing. And it was just fucking awesome. And, you know, you growing up in Baltimore, you're in a little and now you see everything that MTV. Whoa, these guys are fucking in the bathroom. It's cocaine on the table is awesome. You know, as, you know, and I was never a drug user. It wasn't my thing. But to be around people that were crazy enough to do it. Yeah. Wow. These guys are I think I'm a bad boy. These guys are badass. Uh, so and, who, but the, who of that who who of that crowd at that time are the people that we still know from the kibbutz? I don't know. Today? Anybody? I don't know. I was drinking so much Jaeger during those years <laughs> that uh, uh, it, it's possible Morty was the DJ there at the time, uh, but we didn't know each other. I didn't know people. I just went. And a lot of times I could be in environments, you know, where I don't know anybody and I'm perfectly happy just yeah. kind of being there. And maybe you'll strike up a conversation with someone at a bar or at the table. Oh, hey, man. And maybe you won't. And I'm perfectly fine either way, because the musicianship that was was amazing. And and the DJ, you know, I used to go not only on Tuesday nights, but I would stop by there several times and people that would come through. These were the the guys that I saw on MTV, long hair and, you know, cool cut off shirts. And it was just just post grunge and. You know, the musicianship was so great. It wasn't like anything I had heard um, growing up in Baltimore other than on the radio. And now these guys are from L.A., so they must be amazing musicians. That was my intro to the Kibbutzim. And then, you fa you know, and then my life took over because, again, growing up Orthodox, you're told you got to get a, a nice, steady job and a, this. So I also had to find my way like that. The it wasn't until. I don't know. We're in 2021 now. Maybe 20, uh, not even 20, 19 something, late 19s, early 2000s. I don't know. Uh, I got an email from Rami Jaffe, who was the keyboard player for who is now the keyboard player for the Foo Fighters. I, I met him at synagogue at Shul on like Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur or something like that at a place called the Happy Minion, which was the Happy Minion is like, uh, how do I describe it? Think of it as a synagogue for Orthodox Jewish hippies, grateful deadheads, that kind of thing, you know, but they follow the teachings of a guy named Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach and Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach would be considered in secular terms to be like uh, the John Lennon of Jewish music, just prolific songwriting that to this day, Jews sing at synagogues to this day. All, and it was just one song after another. It was just he was a machine when it came to these songs. And they were great singing, dancing, you know, bringing people closer to enhancing the prayer service, that kind of thing. And I was there when this when the synagogue started and it was just great. And I found that there were so many Orthodox guys in the music business, but guys with long hair guys that were, you know, managers and all this kind of stuff. And to me, again, fascinating at 25, 26 years old to meet cats like this. So this Happy Minion started and I met Rami there and it, we, became, you know, been friends ever since. And uh, he sent out an email. I guess they were bringing the kibbutz room back on Tuesday nights. Mm -hmm. So, oh, my God. Oh, my. And I think at this point, nobody was smoking in there. You couldn't smoke in restaurants anymore or anything like that. But I couldn't imagine the musicianship being even mediocre. You know, I knew it was going to be great. And I went back that first night and it's been like that every Tuesday ever since. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And of course, for anybody who doesn't know, it's Friends of Cantor's Kibitz Room. And the Fockers, yes. The Fockers, yes, on Tuesday nights. And we're really, really, really hoping that that comes back soon. But I, I also wanted to ask you, 
about Rock for Israel. What inspired that, it and how it started? Uh, well, the idea came from the kibbutz room, from hanging out at the kibbutz room. The, the way it worked was this. So I love Israel. I, I, not necessarily the government, but the land, the people. I've been there enough times to see the, the awesomeness of that country. There is a magic when you step off that plane that every person feels. And uh, at the time, Israel was just getting shat on in the press just for stupidity. And, you know, because I'm the only guy that wears a yarmulke to these things, I'm the token Jew that they're going to go, hey, man, why don't you give the land back? And why don't you do that? And peace. And blah, 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 blah. So we would have these discussions outside. And there was already an entity called Comedy for Kobe. And a friend of mine, he started this to bring notable comedians to Israel. Some names you may not know. Some names you definitely do know. Bring them to Israel so they can just see for themselves. You don't have to watch the news. You don't have to just see for yourself. And it was the same thing here. I said to whoever I was talking to, I said, one day, man, I, I'm going to figure out a way to get you guys to Israel and you'll see it yourself. And then you'll understand kind of why and how and size and. And that's how it got started. That was the seedling. And then I took my kid to Israel when she was 12 for her bat mitzvah. She and I went and I saw that Israel had changed quite a bit since I was there when I was younger. Technologically, uh, all the uh, many of the things that we appreciate here in America at the time when I was, you know, a kid going there weren't there I and mean, it just right. tuna fish or peanut butter we used to toilet real good toilet paper yeah. we used to have hey, oh man you're coming to israel you bring me some toilet paper and tuna fish yeah. you know things like that because they didn't have them in israel at the time of any quality the toilet paper they had was rough and this crap uh but now when i went with my kid in you know whatever i don't remember but the it, technology cell phones everything and awesome paper yeah. And the toilet paper was much better. And the I saw that this idea that I had now is a good time to start it. And I just inquired. Originally, the idea was to do um, like USO tours and go to different army bases in Israel and just do shows. And that wasn't it didn't. I spoke to a few people and they said it's not going to work out anymore like that. We don't really do stuff like that because it's security issues to bring that size audience and things like that. It's just not uh, the thing to do. So I kind of flipped the script and said, all right, well, what if I bring them to just do shows and we'll play at clubs or venues? Because by this point, I was already in the music business for so many years, you know, easily 20 years from 95 to, you know, 2015. It's 20 years. Right. I'm doing the math. Right. It's 20 years. Uh, so I knew so many people, not just in the Jewish music world, but in the secular music world and regular rock and roll and managers and musicians and just from being around because I'm a friendly guy. Um, and I'm not I don't pose a threat to anybody. I'm not a better guitar player than anybody. I can't really play any instruments um, professionally. So I'm not there's no competition. I'm just the Jewish rapper. And it's always fun when you have musicians and rapping and you just have a good time with it. And that's how the idea started. And I said, you know, I'm going to make it a nonprofit because uh, I want this to be something genuine that people can just volunteer, that musicians can say, I'll check it out. I have an open mind. I'll check it out. And I like to rock. And it'd be cool to see hot chicks with guns. You know, that's cool, too. Can't go wrong with that. And, uh, you know, I just got a roster of like 30, 40 notable musicians, some names, you know, some names you don't know, um, and kind of built it up from there. And donations because my touring what i did with schlock rock what i did is Aton g i still do but it's no longer i can't make a living on it um you know i'm older my body doesn't i can't spin on my head like i used to it's it's a different and the game is different now yeah. and while i still love doing it and i do shows i definitely do shows during the year but it, what used to be 70 80 90 shows in a year is now maybe you know five or ten and i don't have a problem with that i don't have a problem with that at all but my drive and my lust for traveling and education i've always been a fan of education if you don't know something learn about it and i think the ability and the opportunity to bring great musicians to israel for not only for them to rock and perform but to meet other musicians 
in Israel. I don't care if they're Arab or, or you know, Christian or Jewish. Yeah, Israel. What? But musicians have their own language. They speak to each other, and the the opportunities for both entities, both individuals, both cultures to meet and merge and make music is, in my opinion, just the highest level of connection you can get. The creating of something from nothing, the connecting to another human being and creating something from nothing is, is I don't know of any uh, art or connection that can happen other than music that is so powerful, that can really change the world. And you find, especially nowadays, very tumultuous times, particularly politically, I find that, you know, with the Internet, a lot of people can comment freely and just say whatever they want on the Internet, stuff that they would never say to you in person. And if they were to hold that position with you in person, you guys could have a dialogue about it. Well, what about this? And you guys can go back and forth and have a, a healthy dialogue and you get to know each other and you laugh. And you, you may not agree. You may walk away not agreeing, but you definitely would never defriend that person in almost all cases. It just doesn't happen because the human connection is more powerful than the cyber connection. And it, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say that that's that's what the, the real downside of social media is that it has destroyed the interpersonal connection, even though ostensibly the whole idea behind it was to bring people together, but it actually causes more division. And so I really think that if people can sit down, look into somebody else's eyes, just like we used to, you know, mm -hmm. we growing up in the analog, in the analog world as, as you and I did, because we're the same age, you know, that was, we, we talked to each other. We didn't, we didn't just condemn someone because we thought that they believed differently from us. We could, we That's could right. disagree and love each other anyway. And I, I'm really hoping that we can get back to that. And for me, I love hanging out with people that I have different views that different yeah. because each one of us, each human being, we have our own unique story. No one better or worse than the other, just different. And the dialogue two people can have, I sit there knowing that this person has a completely different life experience than I do. So their perception of an issue or a, a topic might be different, even their perception of music. Why do the guys, you know, you and I, uh, we have a lot of friends in the kibitz room. Uh, they love Elvis Costello. You know, I wasn't really exposed to Elvis Costello in Baltimore, and I was not really a fan of his music. It didn't get uh, a couple songs here and there, but, you know, to, to some, he's, you know, he's great. Mm -hmm. um, I'm more of a Beach Boys fan than a Beatles fan. Love right. the Beatles, but I like the Beach Boys took me to another place visually in my head with the music, not to disparage the Beatles, guys. I love the Beatles. Different connection. But the if you were to compare the two is that kind of thing. So I their experience in music and what they did, um, the our friends. I already know going in, we have different experiences. I'm an observant Jew. It's just a different lifestyle. The things that I've done, the people I've met along the way, the things that I've been exposed to, the things that they've been exposed to much different than myself. And I love hearing about it. I may not agree with some of the things they chose or do, or whether it's political or musically or anything like that, but I love the dialogue and I love hearing why. Well, why? Well, because when I was a kid, someone gave me a Fender and that's why I like Fender guitars better than, you know, Gretsch. Yeah, but Gretsch, they look cool, a hollow body, I don't know, you know, and you just I like to hear the why. Hmm. So social media has uh, connected us, right. We're connected, mm -hmm. but it's very stoically, very superficially. And therefore, we think we can say or do things to anybody you'll see on social media i never really post anything mean at all generally they're jokes one-liners you know and if i find that one of my one-liners can be misread or set somebody off uh, i'll delete it it's it's no i don't want people to be upset the world right. is so much fun when there's 
laughter and, and silliness and just don't take things so much seriously. The whole political climate. When I grew up, when I was 16, 17 years old, all I wanted was pussy. I didn't know from politics. I didn't care about who the president was. I didn't need to know. I didn't want to know. There were, I just wanted to hang out with my friends and make music and, you know, hang out with the girls. And that's what I wanted. Uh, this whole thing now, everybody's a politician and everybody has an opinion. And uh, we had opinions. Are you going to put onions on the pizza? Or are you not going to put onions? I mean, make up your mind. That was the opinions. Uh, we uh, to this day, many of the friends that I have from that period of time, we're still best friends. And we still have completely different perspectives on so many things because they grew up, you know, relatively normal, you know, elementary school, high school, very stable. I did not. I had a very tumultuous youth. But for me, as uh, I said, even before we started the show was I like that. I thrive on it. It keeps my brain always ticking. You know, I love hearing people's stories. I love hanging out outside the kibitz room. And this musician had this story and that musician had that story. I love talking. I have friends that are dancers. I like hearing that. Th I just love I love the arts and I love hearing from the people that are in the arts, their stories, because not everybody grew up in a normal, stable environment and not a lot of people. And, and there are many people that did, but they had their own trials and tribulations. Some had no trials. and tribulations. Oh, it's been a great life. It was great. But there's still stories. There's still things that they can contribute that'll wow, really? You did that? Oh, yeah. My parents, we, we grew up in West Virginia and we had a field and cows. Oh, that's so awesome because it's different than my experience. Mm -hmm. And that's what I thrive on. I love that. And you've also been able to straddle the line between that and and you are a papa bear. You have a family and you have four young ones. And so you have a family life. You have a stable family life and I don't know that I call it stable <laughs> with, with kids. Nothing's ever one. stable. <laughs> you have one and you're also able to go out and do all of these things. And I, I really, I really think that the world changes one person at a time. Nothing is changed by some comment on Facebook. What, what, what changes the world is real exchange and a real connection between real people and sharing those stories. For sure. For sure. And you know, there are many stories there. Look, I love the stories. I've always loved stories. I love being read to when I was a kid. I love reading to my kids. I love, you know, that's why we like movies. That's why in movies nowadays, they many lack stories. They're fun. They're exciting. They're action packed, but it's not a story. It's not character development. I like to try and figure out why did this guy do that? You know, the Godfather, a great story you know, about a world that I have no clue about these kinds. Of, I love this. I love talking. I love having tea with people, drinks. I, uh, you may know I have cigars with my friends once a week. I love, there's always something new that we discover mm -hmm. that I didn't know. And the people I'm hanging out with are not guys that have a similar upbringing to mine, you know, as observant Jews, some are not Jewish, some are black, some are, uh, just musicians since the time they were 11 years old. Everybody has stories and I love those stories. And I love that you started this podcast to capture those stories from people. Yeah. You know, now not everybody's going to be able to articulate their stories in a captivating way, but I've always had a, a fondness of asking those probing questions that make them think just a little bit harder about their story to get a little bit deeper, that human element that made them them. You know what I mean? I love yeah. that. And I love that you're doing that because uh, I've heard some of the interviews that you did. Oh, I didn't know he did that. Well, wow, that's cool. You know, I find one of the, um, I'm really blessed to have friends from all walks of life and, and people with a real diversity of opinion. You know, I've, I've got friends who are Trump supporters. I've got friends who are raging liberals and everything. Why are these the, the two main topics that people have? No, it's I know, so funny I know. nowadays. It's hey, you're Trump or you're, you know, well, no, no, but I'm just using as an example because we are in this polarized time. So, but in, in terms of, or, or not even, you know, not just politically, but just the diversity of background, diversity of experience and whatnot. And, and I just find it so beautiful 
that we we have our friendship and our exchange and our and the things that we don't I have I have one friend who is really very very politically minded and I said um you know Dave I love you but can we not talk about that and he said there's says, so much sure. more to talk about yes so well, that's much a, more that's the thing and he and his wife travel all over the world and i said i want to see your pictures of yes italy. i want to see oh you went I, to italy did you go here right. what did you see oh my god we went to this thing it was great we yeah. had this there's this little tiny restaurant on the side these are the things that i love doing these are the things that matter and these are the things that endure all this other stuff is just so much noise my conversations with people like that will ultimately in the end devolve into sex. Oh, you're in Italy. Did you go to the leaning tower of Pisa? Did you, did you, did you guys fuck up there? Was it good? <laughs> How did that go? Did it tilt the window? I love hearing those stories. Usually for me, it's, it's, what did you eat? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's good too. That's all that, that's, oh all my God. that stuff. I I'm, I'm interested in the sensory experience of life, sure. you know, and everybody, <laughs> everybody has that. And I, well, wow. sex is sensory. Yes, it is. Yes, yes. But this has been such a joy to have you <laughs> on. And I, you've been on my list, and and um, and I, I just want to thank you so much for doing this. I'll have to. Have no, no, no. Thank you for doing stories. this. Right. More people should be able to hear people's stories, so that no one is defined by a political view. That they don't even need to be defined. You can't define people. They're too complicated enjoy them, appreciate them, the quirkiness and the, the insanity and all the silly things that people do and all the dumb things that people say, it is the best. So keep capturing people's stories, keep presenting them to the world so we can all listen to the stupidity that we've all done in our lives. It is the best. The stupidity and the glory. The, the glory, glory is the stupidity. stupidity. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I know. Thank you, honey. Thank you. I so love much. you. Thank you so much. I love you too, Aton. Take care, baby. And that was my talk with the inimitable, the fierce, the fabulous, the fantastic Aton G, the Jewish rapper, a wonderful guy and a much loved friend of ours. It was a blessing to have him on the show. And thanks to Aton. I have a track for you to hear for your listening pleasure called Foundation. I hope you enjoy. Until next time, take good care of each other, take good care of yourselves, and I will see you on the other side. Sometimes an act of apparent destruction becomes an act of building a foundation. I know you wanna explore, wanna push the envelope, but get out of